Okay. Chapter 73. Krishna, Lord Krishna returns to the city of Hastinapur. The kings and princes released by Lord Krishna after the death of Jarasandha were rulers of different parts of the world. Jarasandha was so powerful in military strength that he had conquered all these princes and kings numbering 20,800. There's the number we were looking for the other day. As per the Vishnu Purana, Maharaj Yadu was requested by his father, Maharaj Yayati, to give him his years of youth in exchange uh. for his own, own old age. When Maharaj Yadu refused, Maharaj Yayati cursed him that since you are a disobedient son, you and your descendants are unfit to occupy the throne. I believe this is also narrated in this manner in the Mahabharata and slightly different in other Puranas, your servant Kartik Chandradas. Jai Kartik Chandra Das Ki Jai. <clears throat> okay. These 20,800 kings <clears throat> were all incarcerated within a mountain cave, especially constructed as a fort. And for a long time they were kept in that situation. When they were, when they were released by the grace of Lord Krishna, they all looked very unhappy. Their garments were niggardly and their faces were almost dried up for want of proper bodily care. They were very weak due to hunger, and their faces had lost all beauty and luster. The king's long imprisonment had caused every part of their bodies to become slack and invalid. However, because of that miserable condition, they had had the opportunity to think about Lord Krishna, and they immediately saw him now as the Supreme Personality of Godhead, Vishnu. They saw that the color of the transcendental body of Lord Krishna resembled the hue of a newly, newly arrived cloud in the sky. He appeared before them nicely covered with yellow silken garments with four hands like Vishnu and carrying the different symbols of the club, the conch shell, the disc, and the lotus flower. His chest was marked with a golden line, and the nipples of his chest appeared like the horals of lotus flowers. His eyes appeared to spread like the petals of a lotus, and his smiling face exhibited the symbol of eternal, the symbol of eternal peace and prosperity. He wore glittering, shark-shaped earrings, and his helmet was bedecked with valuable jewels. The Lord's necklace of pearls and the bangles and bra bracelets nicely situated on his body all shone with a transcendental beauty. The Kostuba jewel hanging on his chest glittered with great luster and the Lord wore a beautiful flower garland. <clears throat> After so much distress, when the kings and princes saw Lord Krishna with his beautiful transcendental features, they looked upon him to their heart's content as if drinking nectar through their eyes, licking his body with their tongues, smelling the aroma of his body with their noses, and embracing him with their arms. 
just by dint of their being in front of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, all reactions to their sinful activities were washed away. Therefore, without reservation, they surrendered themselves at the lotus feet of the Lord. It is stated in, in the Bhagavad Gita that unless one is freed from all sinful reactions, <clears throat> one cannot fully surrender under the lotus feet of the Lord. All the princes who saw Lord Krishna forgot all their past tribulations. With folded hands and with great devotion, they offered prayers to, to Lord Krishna as follows. <clears throat> Dear Lord, O Supreme Personality of Godhead, Master of all demigods, you can immediately remove all your devotees' pangs because your devotees are fully surrendered unto you. O dear Lord Krishna, O eternal deity of transcendental bliss and knowledge, you are imperishable, and we offer our respectful obeisances unto your lotus feet. It is by your causeless mercy that we have been released from the imprisonment of Jarasandha. But now we pray that you release us from imprisonment within material existence, your illusory energy. Please stop our continuous cycle of birth and death. We now have sufficient experience of the miserable material life in which we are fully absorbed, and having tasted its bitterness, we have come to take shelter under your lotus feet. Therefore, please give us your protection. Dear Lord, O killer of the demon Madhu, we can now clearly see that Jarasandha was not at fault in the least. It is actually by your causeless mercy that we were bereft of our kingdoms. For we were very proud of calling ourselves rulers and kings. A ruler or king who becomes too much puffed up with false prestige and power gets no opportunity to understand his real constitutional position and eternal life. Under the influence of your illusory energy, such a foolish so-called ruler or king becomes falsely proud of his position, just like a foolish person who considers a mirage in the desert a reservoir of water. Foolish persons think that their material possessions will give them protection. Engaged in sense gratification, they falsely accept this material world as a place of eternal enjoyment. O Lord, O Supreme Personality of Godhead, we must admit that before this we were puffed up with our material opulences. It was as if we were intoxicated. Because we were all envious and wanted to conquer one another, we all engaged in fighting for supremacy, <clears throat> even at the cost of sacrificing the lives of many citizens. This is the disease of political power. As soon as a king becomes rich in material opulences, he wants to dominate other nations by military aggression. Similarly, mercantile men want to monopolize a certain type of business and control other mercantile groups. Impelled by false prestige, and infatuated by material opulences, human society, instead of striving for Krishna consciousness, creates havoc and disrupts peeps peaceful living. Thus men forget the real purpose of life. 
to attain the favor of Lord Vishnu, the Supreme Personality of Godhead. The kings continued, O Lord, we were simply engaged in the abominable task of killing citizens and alluring them to be unnecessarily killed, just to satisfy our political whims. We did not consider that your lordship is always present before us in the form of cruel death. We were so foolish that we, came, that we became the cause of death for others, <clears throat> forgetting our own impending death. But, dear Lord, the force of the time element, which is your representative, is certainly insurmountable. The time element is so strong that no one can es escape its influence. Therefore, we have received the reactions of our atrocious activities, and we are now bereft of all opulences and stand before you like street beggars. We consider our position your causeless, unalloyed mercy upon us, because now we can understand that we were falsely proud and that our material opulences could be withdrawn from us within a second by your will. By your causeless mercy only, we are now able to think of your lotus feet. This is our greatest gain. Dear Lord, everyone knows that the body is a breeding ground of diseases. Now we are quite aged, and instead of being, being proud of our bodily strength, we are getting weaker by day by day. We are no longer interested in sense gratification or the false happiness derived through the material body. By your grace, we have now come to the conclusion that hankering after such material happiness is just like searching for water in a desert mirage. We are no longer interested in the results of our pious activities, such as performing great sacrifices to be elevated to the heavenly planets. We now understand that such elevation to a higher material standard may sound very relishable, but actually there cannot be any happiness within this material world. We pray for your Lordship to favor us. We pray for your Lordship to favor us by instructing us how to engage in the transcendental loving service of your lotus feet so that we may never forget our eternal relationship with your Lordship. We do not want liberation from the entanglement of material existence. By your will, we may take birth in any species of life. It does not matter. <clears throat> we simply pray that we never forget your lotus feet under any circumstances. Dear Lord, we now surrender unto your lotus feet by offering our respectful obeisances unto you, because you are the Supreme Lord, the Personality of Godhead, Krishna, the son of Vasudev. You are the Supersoul in everyone's heart, and you are Lord Hari, who can take away all miserable conditions of material existence. Dear Lord, your name is Govinda, the reservoir of all pleasure, because one who is engaged in satisfying your senses satisfies his own senses automatically. Dear Lord, you are ever famous, for you can put an end to all the miseries of your devotees. Please, therefore, accept us as your surrendered servants.
After hearing the prayers of the kings released from the prison of Jarasandha, Lord Krishna, who is always the protector of surrendered souls in the ocean of mercy for the devotees, replied to them as follows in his sweet, transcendental voice, which was grave and full of meaning. My dear kings, he said, I bestow upon you my blessings. From this day forth, you will be attached to my devotional service without fail. I give you this benediction as you have desired. You may know from me that I am always sitting within your hearts as the supersoul, and because you have now turned your faces toward me, I, as master of everyone, shall always give you good counsel so that you may never forget me, and so that gradually you will come back home, back to Godhead. My dear kings, your decision to give up all conceptions of material enjoyment and turn instead toward my devotional service is factually the symptom of your good fortune. Henceforward, you will always be blessed with blissful life. I confirm that all you have spoken about me in your prayers is factual. It is a fact that the materially opulent position of one who is not fully Krishna conscious is the cause of his downfall and his beginning becoming a victim of the illusory energy. In the past, there were many rebellious kings such as Haihai, Nahusha, Vena, Ravana, Narakasura. Some of them were demigods and some of them demons, but because of their false perception of their positions, they fell from their exalted posts, and thus they no longer remained kings of their respective kingdoms and were lost in the violence of abominable conditioned life. Every one of you must understand that anything material has its starting point, growth, maintenance, expansion, deterioration, and finally, disappearance. All material bodies are subject to these six conditions, and any relative acquisitions accumulated by this body are definitely subject to final destruction. Therefore, no one should be attached to perishable things. As long as one is within this material body, he should be very cautious in worldly dealings. The most perfect way of life in this material world is simply to be devoted to my transcendental loving service and to execute honestly the prescribed duties of one's particular position. As far as you are concerned, you all belong to Kshatriya families. Therefore, you should live honestly according to the prescribed duties befitting the royal order and make your citizens happy in all respects. Keep to the standard of Kshatriya life. Do not beget children out of sense gratification, but simply take charge of the welfare of the people in general. Everyone takes birth in this material world in continuation of his previous life, and thus he is subject to the stringent laws of nature, such as birth and death, distress and happiness, profit and loss. One should not be disturbed by duality, but should always be fixed in my devotional service, and thus remain balanced in mind and satisfied in all circumstances, considering all things to be given by me. Thus one can live a very happy and peaceful life, even within this material condition. In other words, one should actually be callous to the material body and its byproducts and should be unaffected by them. One should remain fully satisfied in the interests of the spirit soul and engage in the service of the super soul. One should engage his mind only in thinking of me. One should simply become my devotee. One should simply worship me, and one should offer his respectful obeisances unto me alone. In this way, one can cross over this ocean of nations very easily and at the end come back to me. 
In conclusion, your lives should constantly be engaged in my service. After delivering his instructions to the kings and princes, Lord Krishna immediately arranged for their comfort and asked many servants and maidservants to take care of them. Lord Krishna requested Sahadeva, the son of King Jarasandha, to supply all necessities to the kings and show them all respect and honor. In pursuance of the order of Lord Krishna, Sahadeva offered them all honor and presented them with ornaments, garments, garlands, and other paraphernalia. After taking their baths and dressing very nicely, the kings appeared happy and gentle. <laughs> then they were supplied. Then they were supplied nice food. Lord Krishna supplied everything for their comfort, as befitting their royal positions. Since the kings were so mercifully treated by Lord Krishna, they felt great happiness, and their bright faces appeared just like the stars in the sky after the end of the rainy season. All nicely dressed and ornamented, their earrings glittering, they were then seated on chariots bedecked with gold and jewels and drawn by decorated horses. After seeing that each was taken care of, Lord Krishna, in a sweet voice, asked them to return to their respective kingdoms. By his liberal behavior, unparalleled in the history of the world, Lord Krishna released all the kings who had been in the clutches of Jarasandha, and the kings, being fully satisfied, began to chant his holy name, think of his holy form, and glorify his transcendental pastimes as the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Thus engaged, they returned to their respective kingdoms. The citizens of their kingdoms were greatly pleased to see them return, and when they heard of the kind dealings of Lord Krishna, they were all very happy. The kings began to manage the affairs of their kingdoms in accordance with the instructions of Lord Krishna, and all those kings and their subjects passed their days very happily. This is a vivid example of a Krishna-conscious society. If the people of the world, taking into account their respective material qualities, divide the whole society into four orders for material progress and four orders for spiritual progress, centering these orders on Krishna and following the instructions of Krishna, as stated in the Bhagavad Gita, the entire human society will undoubtedly be happy. This is the lesson we have to take from this incident. After thus causing the annihilation of Jarasandha by Bhima Sena, and after being properly honored by Sahadeva, the son of Jarasandha, Lord Krishna, accompanied by Bhima Sena and Arjuna, returned to the city of Astinapura. When they reached the precincts of Astinapura, they blew their respective conch shells, and by hearing the sound vibrations and understanding who was arriving, everyone immediately became cheerful. But the enemies of Krishna, upon hearing the conch shells, were very sorry. The citizens of Indraprastha felt their hearts become joyful simply by hearing the vibration of Krishna's conch shell because they could understand that Jarasandha had been killed. Now the performance of the Rajasuya sacrifice by King Yudhishthira was almost certain. Bhimasena, Arjuna, and... <coughs> excuse me. Uh, Bhimasena, Arjuna, and Krishna, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, arrived before King Yudhishthira and offered their respects to the king. King Yudhishthira attentively heard the narration of the killing of Jarasandha and the setting free of the kings. He also heard of the tactics adopted by Krishna to kill Jarasandha. The king was naturally affectionate toward Krishna, but after hearing the story, he became even more bound to him in love. Tears of ecstasy glided from his eyes, and he was so stunned that 
he was almost unable to speak. Thus ends the Bhaktivedanta purport of the 73rd chapter of Krishna. Lord Krishna returns to the city of Hastinapur. And just at the beginning of this story, it's so relatable how these kings are talking about how they had been riding high in the world, they had power and wealth, and then they forgot about death, they forgot about Krishna, and then after being in, imprisoned with really very little hope of getting released, then the text mentions that then they were inclined to think of Krishna. They even had time to think of Krishna. And how <clears throat> it's such a perfect opportunity when somebody seems to be downtrodden or is downtrodden and is oppressed in some way, that it's much more natural to take shelter of Krishna than if one's the king and uh, has a full tank of gas, full refrigerator in his copanoline. But just it's satisfying to hear because it's it's so the prayers are so relatable because everyone can experience that when there's a downturn then naturally one turns to Krishna but it's satisfying at the end because Krishna responds in such a uh, magnificent way and just gives them straight instruction that's uh so simple, he said, just think of me, like focus your mind on one place, become my devotee. I was thinking the same thing, that it's, it's a perfect, it's a panacea for the various problems of the world. It's not, we're not that far away from solving problems if we just follow Krishna's instruction. And then how kind he was to all the kings. He sent all kinds of his servants and maid servants to take care of them, re reinstated them in their position and everything. Any more reflections or comments from the chapter? Prabhu. I was finding it uh, interesting comparing this, uh, these kings to like most of the other kings that Krishna kills. Um, like, all, so many kings are killed, like on the battlefield of Kurukshetra, and are like um, on the other, like Jurasanda and um, all those, whoever was supporting him. And I'm wondering what's the difference between these kings, what, and then the other kings, if they, maybe they had some devotional sentiments or. Krishna says in the seventh chapter of the Gita that if someone has some sukriti, then when some adversity comes, then they turn to Krishna. Otherwise, they don't. But in the context of the Krishna book, because as Maharaj was pointing out the other day, when Krishna kills people, they get liberation. And oftentimes a very special kind of liberation. So even the ones that were averse and got killed got liberated. But what to speak of those who had a little piety and then they realized they should surrender to Krishna. There's so many examples of that. I think the most profound one that everyone noticed was when Krishna goes to Mathura and the contrast between the, the washerman and then the garland maker because the washerman just immediately got karate chopped 
and of course he attained liberation, but not a very high kind of liberation compared to the garland maker who just immediately surrendered to Krishna, was ready to offer services, and the result was so profoundly different, but it's such a simple adjustment. Any other points? Mahendra would, but he's way out in the left, right, right center field. Well, there it is. Chapter 74, The Deliverance of Shishupal. King Yudhishthir became very happy about, after hearing the details of, of the Jarasandha episode, and he spoke as follows. My dear Krishna, O eternal form of bliss and knowledge, all the exalted directors of the affairs of this material world, including Lord Brahma, Lord Shiva, and, Lord, and King Indra, are always eager to receive and carry out orders from you. And whenever they are fortunate enough to receive such orders, they immediately take them and keep them on their heads. O Krishna, you are unlimited, and although we sometimes think of ourselves as royal kings and rulers of the world, and become puffed up over our, our paltry, paltry positions, we are very poor in heart. Actually, we are fit to be punished by you. But the wonder is that instead of us of punishing us, you so kindly and mercifully accept our orders, our, accept our orders and carry them out properly. We are all very much surprised that your lordship can play the part of an ordinary human being but we can understand that you are performing these activities just like a dramatic artist. Your real position is always exalted, exactly like that of the sun, which always remains at the same temperature during both the time of its rising and the time of its setting. Although we feel the difference in temperature between the rising and setting sun, the temperature of the sun never changes. You are always transcendentally equipoised, neither pleased nor disturbed by any condition of material affairs. You are the Supreme Brahman, the Personality of Godhead, and for you, there are no relativities. <clears throat> My dear Madhava, you are never defeated by anyone. Material distinctions, this is me, this is you, this is mine, this is yours, are all conspicuous by dint of their absence in you. Such distinctions are visible in the lives of everyone, even the animals, but pure devotees, are freed from these false distinctions. Since these distinctions are absent in your devotees, they cannot possibly be present in you. After satisfying Krishna in this way, King Yudhishthir arranged to perform the Rajasuya sacrifice. He invited all the qualified brahmanists and sages to take part and appointed them to different positions as priests in charge of the sacrificial arena. He invited the most expert brahmanists and sages whose names are as follows. Krishna Dvaipayana Vyasadev, <clears throat> Bharadwaj, Sumantu, Gautama, Asita, Vashishta, Chaivana, Kanma, Maitreya, Kavasha, Chiti, Vishwamrita, Vamadev, Sumati, Jaimini, Kratu, Paila, Parashara, Garga, Vaishampayana, 
Artava, Kashapa, Domya, Parashuram, Shukracharya, Asuri, Vitihotra, Maduchanda, Virasena, and Akrita Vrana, and Akrita Vrana. Besides all these brahmanas and sages, <clears throat> he invited such respectable old men as Dronacharya, Bhishma, the grandfather of the Kurus, Kripacharya, and Dhritarashtra. <clears throat> he also invited all the sons of Dhritarashtra, headed by Duryodhana, and also the great devotee Vidura. Kings from different parts of the world, along with their ministers and secretaries, were also invited to see the great sacrifice performed by King Yudhishthir, and the citizens comprising learned brahmanas, chivalrous chatriyas, well-to-do vaishas, and faithful shudras, all visited the ceremony. The brahmana priests and sages in, char in charge of the sacrificial ceremony constructed the sacrificial arena as usual with a plow of gold, and they initiated Sri King Yudhishthir as the performer of the great sacrifice in accordance with Vedic rituals. Long years earlier, when Varuna had performed a similar sacrifice, all these sacrificial utensils had been made of gold. Similarly, in the Rajasuya sacrifice of King Yudhishthir, all the utensils required for sacrifice were golden. <clears throat> Present by the invitation of King Yudhishthir to participate in the great sacrifice were all the exalted demigods, including Lord Brahma, Lord Shiva, and Indra, the King of Heaven, accompanied by their associates, as well as by the predominating deities of the higher planetary systems, including Gandharva-loka, Siddha-loka, Janaloka, Tapu-loka, Nagaloka, Yaksha-loka, Rakshasha-loka, Pakshi-loka, and Charna-loka, as well as famous kings <clears throat> and their queens. All the respectable sages, kings, and demigods who assembled there agreed unanimously that King Yudhishthir was quite competent to take the responsibility for performing the Rajasuya sacrifice. No one was in disagreement of the, on this fact. Everyone thoroughly knew the position of King Yudhishthir. Because he was a great devotee of Lord Krishna, no accomplishment was extraordinary for him. The learned brahmanas and priests saw to it that the sacrifice of Maharaj Yudhishthir was performed in exactly the same way as it had been in bygone ages by the demigod Varuna. <clears throat> According to the Vedic system, whenever there is an arrangement for sacrifice, the members participating are offered the juice of the soma plant, which is a kind of life-giving beverage. On the day for extracting the soma juice, King Yudhishthir very respectively, respectfully received the special priest <clears throat> who had been engaged to detect any mistake in the formalities, formalities of the sacrificial procedure. The idea is that the Vedic mantras must be enunciated perfectly and chanted with the proper accent. If the priests who are engaged in this business commit any mistake, the checker or referee priest immediately corrects the procedure, and thus the ritualistic performances are perfectly executed. Unless perfectly executed, 
a sacrifice cannot yield the desired result. In this age of Kali, there is no learned Brahmana <clears throat> or priest available. Therefore, all such sacrifices are forbidden. The only sacrifice recommended in the Shastras is the chanting of the Hare Krishna mantra. <clears throat> Another important procedure is that the most exalted personality in the assembly of such a sacrificial ceremony is first offered worship. After all arrangements were made for Yudhisthira's sacrifice, the next consideration was who should be worshipped first in the ceremony. This particular ceremony is called Agra Puja. Agra means first and Puja means worship. This Agra Puja is similar to the election of a president. In the sacrificial assembly, all the members were very exalted. Some proposed to elect one person as the perfect candidate for accepting Agra Puja, <clears throat> and others proposed someone else. When the matter remained undecided, Sahadev began to speak in favor of Lord Krishna. He said, Lord Krishna, the best amongst the members of the Yadu dynasty and the protector of his devotees, is the most exalted personality in this assembly. Therefore, I think that he should, without any objection, be offered the honor of being worshipped first. Although demigods such as Lord Brahma, Lord Shiva, Indra, and many other exalted personalities are present in this assembly, no one can be equal to or greater than Krishna in terms of time, space, riches, strength, reputation, wisdom, renunciation, or any other consideration. Anything considered an opulence is fully present in Krishna. As an individual soul is the basic principle of the growth of his material body, Krishna is the super soul of this cosmic manifestation. All Vedic ritualistic ceremonies, such as the perfection, performance of sacrifices, the offering of oblations into the fire, the chanting of the Vedic hymns, and the practice of mystic yoga, are meant for realizing Krishna. Whether one follows the path of fruitive activities or the path of philosophical speculation, the ultimate destination is Krishna. All bona fide methods of self-realization are meant for understanding Krishna. Ladies and gentlemen, it is superfluous to speak about Krishna because every one of you exalted personalities knows the Supreme Brahman, Lord Krishna, for whom there are no material differences between body and soul, between energy and the energetic, or between one part of the body and another. Since everyone is part and parcel of Krishna, there is no qualitative difference between Krishna and all living entities. Everything is an emanation of Krishna's energies, material and spiritual. Krishna's energies are like the heat and light of fire. There is no difference between the qualities of heat and light and the fire itself. Also, Krishna can do anything he likes with any part of his body. We can execute a particular action with the help of a particular part of our body. But he can do anything and everything with any part of his body. 
and because his transcendental body is full of knowledge and bliss in eternity, he doesn't undergo the six kinds of material changes, birth, existence, growth, production, dwindling, and vanishing. Unforced by any external energy, he is the supreme cause of the creation, maintenance, and dissolution of everything that be. By the grace of Krishna only, everyone is engaged in the practice of religion, the development of economic conditions, the satisfaction <clears throat> of the senses, and ultimately the achievement of liberation from material bondage. These four principles of progressive life can be executed by the mercy of Krishna only. He should therefore be offered the first worship in this great sacrifice, and no one should disagree. Just by watering the root of a tree, one automatically waters the branches, twigs, leaves, and flowers. Or as by supplying food to the stomach, one automatically nourishes all parts of the body. So by offering the first worship to Krishna, we shall satisfy everyone present in this meeting, including the great demigods. If anyone is charitably disposed, it will be very good for him to give charity only to Krishna, who is the super-soul of everyone, regardless of his particular body or individual personality. Krishna is present as the super-soul in every living being, and if we can satisfy him, then every living being will automatically be satisfied. Sahadev was fortunate to know of the glories of Krishna, and after describing them in brief, he stopped speaking. After this speech, all the members present in the great sacrificial assembly applauded, applauded, confirming his words continuously by saying, everything you have said is completely perfect. Everything you have said is completely perfect. King Yudhishthira, after hearing the confirmation by all present, especially by the brahmanas and learned sages, worshipped Lord Krishna according to the regulative principles of the Vedic injunctions. Can you look up the Sanskrit for that, somebody? Everything you have said is completely perfect. We'll add it to our repertoire. First of all, King Yudhishthira, along with his brothers, wives, children, and other relatives and ministers, washed the lotus feet of Lord Krishna and sprinkled the water on their heads. After this, he offered Lord Krishna various kinds of yellow silken garments and presented heaps of jewelry and ornaments before him for his use. King Yudhishthira felt such ecstasy by honoring Krishna, his only lovable object, that tears glided down from his eyes. And although he wanted to see Lord Krishna, he could not see him very well. When Lord Krishna was thus worshipped by King Yudhishthira, all the members present in the assembly stood up with folded hands and began to chant, Jai, Jai, Namaha, Namaha. All joined together to offer their respectful obeisances to Krishna, and there were showers of flowers from the sky. In that meeting, King Shishupal was also present, he was an avowed enemy of Krishna for many reasons, especially because of Krishna's having stolen Rukmini from his intended marriage ceremony. Therefore, he could not tolerate such honoring of Krishna and glorification of his qualities. Instead of being happy to hear the glories of the Lord, he became very angry. 
When everyone offered respect to Krishna by standing up, Shishapal remained in his seat. But as he became angrier at Krishna's being honored, he stood up suddenly, raised his hands, and spoke very strongly and fearlessly against Lord Krishna in such a way that Lord Krishna could hear him distinctly. Ladies and gentlemen, I can appreciate now the statement of the Vedas that after all, time is the predominating factor. In spite of all endeavors, to the contrary, the time element executes its own plan without opposition. For example, one may try his best to live, but when the time for death comes, no one can check it. I see here that although many stalwart personalities are present in this assembly, the influence of time is so strong that they have been misled by the statement of a boy who has foolishly spoken about Krishna. Many learned sages and elder persons are present, but still they have accepted the statement of a foolish boy. This means that by the influence of time, even the intelligence of such honored persons as those present in this meeting can be misdirected. I fully agree with the respectable persons present here that they are competent to select the personality who can be worshipped first, but I cannot agree with the statement of a boy like Sahadeva who has spoken so highly about Krishna and has recommended that Krishna is fit to accept the first worship in the sacrifice. I can see that in this meeting there are many personalities who have undergone great austerities, who are highly learned, and who have performed many penances. By their knowledge and direction, they can deliver many persons who are suffering from the pangs of material existence. There are great rishis here whose knowledge has no bounds, as well as many self-realized persons and brahmanas also. And therefore I think that any one of them could have been selected for the first worship because they are worshipable even by the great demigods, kings and emperors. I cannot understand how you have selected this cowherd boy, Krishna, and have left aside all these great personalities. I think Krishna to be no better than a crow. How can he be fit to accept the first worship in this great sacrifice? We cannot even ascertain which caste this Krishna belongs to or what his actual occupational duty is. Actually, Krishna does not belong to any caste, nor does he have to perform any occupational duty. It is stated in the Vedas that the Supreme Lord has nothing to do as his prescribed duty. Whatever has to be done on his, his behalf is executed by his different energies. Shishapal continued, Krishna does not belong to a high family. He is so independent that no one knows his principles of religious life. Indeed, it appears that he is outside the jurisdiction of all religious principles. He always acts independently not caring for the Vedic injunctions and regulative principles. Therefore, he is devoid of all good qualities. Shishapal indirectly praised Krishna by saying that he is not within the jurisdiction of Vedic injunctions. This is true because he is the Supreme Personality of Godhead. That he has no good qualities, gunaihinaha, means that Krishna has no material qualities. And because he is the Supreme Personality of Godhead, he acts independently not caring for conventions in social or religious principles. Shishapal continued, Under the circumstances, how can he be fit to accept the first worship in the sacrifice? Krishna is so foolish that he has left Mathura. 
which is inhabited by highly elevated persons following the Vedic culture and has taken shelter in the ocean, where there is not even talk of the Vedas. Instead of living openly, he has constructed a fort within the water and is living in a place where there is no discussion of Vedic knowledge. And whenever he comes out of the fort, he simply harasses the citizens like a dacoit, thief, or rogue. Shishapal went crazy because of Krishna's being elected the supreme first worshipped person in that meeting. And he spoke so irresponsibly that it appeared he had lost all his good fortune. Being overcast with misfortune, Shishapal continued to insult Krishna, and Lord Krishna patiently heard him without protest. Just as a lion does not care when a flock of jackals howl, Lord Krishna remained silent and unprovoked. Krishna did not reply to even a single accusation made by Shishupal, but all the members present in the meeting, except for a few who agreed with Shishupal, were very much agitated because it is the duty of any respectable person not to tolerate blasphemy against God or his devotee. Some of them who thought that they could not properly take action against Shishupal left the assembly in protest, covering their ears with their hands in order not to hear further accusations. Thus they left the meeting condemning the action of Shishupal. It is the Vedic injunction that whenever there is blasphemy of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, one must immediately leave. If he does not do so, he becomes bereft of his pious activities and is degraded to a lower condition of life. All the kings present, belonging to the Kuru dynasty, Matsi dynasty, Kikai dynasty, and Shundraya dynasty, were very angry and immediately took up their swords and shields to kill Shishupal, who was so foolish that he was not even slightly agitated, although all the kings present were ready to kill him. Shishupal did not care to think of the pros and cons of his foolish talking, and instead of stopping when he saw that all the kings were ready to kill him, he stood to fight with them and took up his sword and shield. When Lord Krishna saw that they were going to fight in the arena of the auspicious Rajasuya Yajna, he personally pacified them. Out of his causeless mercy, he himself decided to kill Shishupal. When Shishupal was abusing the kings who were about to attack him, Lord Krishna took up his disc as sharp as the blade of a razor and immediately separated Shishupal's head from his body. When Shishupal's Shishapal was thus killed, a great roar and howl went up from the crowd. Taking advantage of that disturbance, the few kings who were a supporter of Shishapal quickly left the assembly out of fear of their lives. Then the fortune of Shishapal's spirit soul immediately merged into the body of Lord Krishna in the presence of all, exactly as a burning meteor falls to the surface of the globe. The merging of Shishapal's soul into the transcendental body of Krishna reminds us of the story of Jain Vichai, who fell to the material world from the Vaikuntha planets upon being cursed by the four Kumaras. For their return to the Vaikuntha world, it was arranged that both Jai and Vijay, for three consecutive births, would act as deadly enemies of the Lord. And that, at the end of these lives, they would return to the Vaikuntha world and serve the Lord as his associates. Although Shishupal acted as the enemy of Krishna, 
He was not for a single moment out of Krishna consciousness. He was always absorbed in thought of Krishna, and thus he first got the salvation of Sayuja Mukti, merging into the existence of the Supreme, and was finally reinstated in his original position of personal service. The Bhagavad Gita corroborates the fact that one who was absorbed in the thought of the Supreme Lord at the time of death immediately enters the kingdom of God after quitting his material body. After salvation, after the salvation of Shishupal, King Yudhishthir rewarded all the members present in the sac sacrificial assembly. He generously remunerated the priests and learned sages for their engagement in the execution of the sacrifice, and after performing all this routine work, he took his bath. This bath at the end of the sacrifice is also technical. It is called the Avabrita bath. Lord Krishna thus enabled the performance of the Rajasuya Yagya arranged by King Yudhishthir to be successfully completed and being requested by his cousins and relatives, he remained in Hastinapur for a few months more. Although King Yudhishthir and his brothers were unwilling to have Lord Krishna leave Hastinapur, Krishna arranged to take permission from the king to return to Dwarka, and thus he returned home along with his queens and ministers. The story of the fall of giant Vijay from the Vaikuntha planets to the material world is described in the seventh canto of Srimad Bhagavatam. The killing of Shishupal has a direct link with that narration of Jai and Vijay, but the most important instruction we get from this incident is that the Supreme Personality of Godhead, being absolute, can give salvation to everyone, whether one acts as his enemy or as his friend. It is therefore a misconception that the Lord acts with someone in the relationship of friend and with someone else in the relationship of enemy. His being an enemy or friend is always on the absolute platform. There is no material distinction. After King Yudhishthir took his bath at the conclusion of the sacrifice and stood in the midst of all the learned sages and brahmanas, he seemed exactly like the king of heaven and thus looked very beautiful. King Yudhishthir generously rewarded all the demigods who participated in the yagya <clears throat> and being greatly satisfied, all of them left, praising the king's activities and glorifying Lord Krishna. When he did these incidents of Krishna's killing Shishupal and described the successful execution of the Rajasuya Yagya by Maharaj Yudhishthir, he also pointed out that after the successful termination of the Yagya, only one person was unhappy. He was Duryodhana. Duryodhana, Duryodhana by nature was very envious because of his sinful life. And he appeared in the dynasty of the Kurus like a chronic disease personified to destroy the whole family. Shukadeva Goswami assured Maharaj Pariksit that the pastimes of Lord Krishna, the killing of Shishupal and Jarasandha, 
and the releasing of the imprisoned kings <clears throat> are all transcendental vibrations, and that anyone who hears these narrations from authorized persons will immediately be freed from all the reactions of the sinful activities of his life. Thus, Andy Bhaktivedanta purports, purport of the 74th chapter of Krishna, the deliverance of Shishupal. Oh, okay. <clears throat> Why do Yodana felt insulted at the end of the Rajasuya sacrifice? King Yudhishthir was known as a Jatashatru, or a person who had no enemy. Therefore, when all the men, demigods, kings, sages, and saints saw the successful termination of the Rajasuya Jagya performed by King Yudhishthir, they were very happy. That Duryodhana alone was unhappy was astonishing to Maharaj Parikshit. And therefore, he requested Chukadev Goswami to explain this. Chukadev Goswami said, My dear King Parikshit, your grandfather King Yudhishthir was a great soul. His congenial disposition attracted everyone to be his friend. And therefore he was known as a Jatashatru, one who never created an enemy. He engaged all the members of the Kuru dynasty in taking charge of different departments for the management of the Rajasuya sacrifice. For example, Bhimasena was put in charge of the kitchen department. Duryodhana in charge of the, the supplies department. Sahadev in charge of the reception department. Nakula in the charge of the store department. And Arjuna in charge of looking after the comforts of the elder persons. The most astonishing feature was that Krishna, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, took charge of washing the feet of all the incoming guests. The queen, the goddess of fortune, Draupadi, was in charge of administering the distribution of food. And because Karna was famous for giving charity, he was put in charge of the charity department. In this way, Satyaki, Vikarna, Hardika, Vidura, Santardana, and Burishrava, the son of Balika, were all engaged in different departments for managing the affairs of the Rajasuya sacrifice. They were all so bound in loving affection for Lord for King Yudhishthir. I, I don't know, but in my book, uh, Sasi Duryodhana was in charge of the treasury department. So it was a correct corrected. And, you had, and the other one was not cool. I was in charge of... It was corrected. This is the latest version. Okay. <clears throat> I'll read it again. <clears throat> uh, I can... Supplies department. There's a reason for that, and I don't have it in my top my tongue, but we can find out why that was changed from the original. It, it, it came from the original. 
Yes. Yes. It's the same. It's the same. Supplies, treasury. <laughs> After Shishupal died, let me see, where were I? Got, I got interrupted here. Where was I? In this way, Satyaki, Vikarna, Hardikya, Vidura, Santardana, and Bhurishrava, the son of Balika, were all engaged in different departments for managing the affairs of the Rajasuya sacrifice. They were all so bound in loving affection for King Yudhishthir that they simply wanted to please him. After Shishupal died by the mercy of Lord Krishna and merged into the spiritual existence, and after the end of the Rajasuya Yajna, when all the friends, guests, and well-wishers had been fully honored and rewarded, <clears throat> King Yudhishthir went to bathe in the Ganges. The city of Hastinapur stands today on the bank of the Yamuna, and the statement of Srimad Bhagavatam that King Yudhishthir went to bathe in the Ganges indicates, therefore, that during the time of the Pandavas, the river Yamuna was also known as the Ganges. While the king was taking the Avabrita bath, different musical instruments vibrated, such as mridangas, conch shells, panavas, drums, kettle drums, and bugles, and the ankle bells of the dancing girls jingled. Many groups of professional singers sang as venas, flutes, gongs, and cymbals were played, and thus a tumultuous sound vibrated in the sky. The princely guests from many kingdoms like Srinjaya, Kamboja, Kuru, Kekaya, and Koshala were present with their different flags and gorgeously decorated elephants, chariots, horses, and soldiers. All of them passed in a procession with, with King Yudhishthir in the forefront. The executive members who had performed the sacrifice, the priests, religious ministers, and brahmanas, all loudly chanted the Vedic hymns. The demigods and inhabitants of Pitruloka and Gandharvaloka, as well as many sages, showered flowers from the sky. The men and women of Hastinapur, or Indraprastha, their bodies smeared with scents and floral oils, were nicely dressed in colorful garments and decorated with garlands, jewels, and ornaments. Enjoying the ceremony, they threw on one another liquid substances like water, oil, milk, butter, and yogurt. Some even smeared these on each other's bodies. In this way, they enjoyed the occasion. The professional prostitutes jubilantly smeared these liquid substances of the bodies of the men, and the men reciprocated in the same way. All the liquid substances had been mixed with turmeric and saffron, and their color was lustrous yellow. In order to observe the great ceremony, many wives of the demigods had come in different airplanes, and they were visible in the sky. Similarly, the queens of the royal family, gorgeously decorated and surrounded by bodyguards, arrived on different palanquins. During this time, Lord Krishna, the maternal cousin of the Pandavas, and his special friend Arjuna were both throwing the liquid substances on the bodies of the queens. The queens became bashful, but at the same time their beautiful smiling brightened their faces. Because of the liquids thrown on their bodies, 
The saris covering them became completely wet. The different parts of their beautiful bodies, particularly their breasts and their waists, became partially visible because of the wet cloth. The queens brought buckets of the same liquid substances and with syringes sprinkled them on the bodies of their brothers-in-law. As they engaged in such jubilant activities, their hair fell loose and the flowers decorating their bodies began to fall. When Lord Krishna Arjuna and the queens were thus engaged in these jubilant activities, persons who were not clean in heart were agitated by lustful desires. In other words, such behavior between pure males and females is enjoyable, but it makes persons who are materially contaminated lustful. Krishna, King Yudhishthir, in a gorgeous chariot yoked to excellent horses, was present there along with his queens, including Draupadi, and their features were so beautiful that it appeared as if the great Rajasuya sacrifice were standing there in person along with the different functions of the sacrifice. Following the Rajasuya sacrifice, there was the great there was the Vedic ritualistic duty known as Patni Samyaja. This sacrifice, which one performs along with one's wife, was also duly conducted by the priests of King Yudhishthir. As Queen Jopati and King Yudhishthir were taking their Abhabrita bath, the citizens of Hastinapur, as well as the demigods, began to beat on drums and blow trumpets out of feelings of happiness, and there was a shower of flowers from the sky. When the king and the queen finished their bath in the Ganges, all the other citizens consisting of all the Varnas were cast. The Brahmanas, Kshatriyas, Vaishyas, and Shudras took their baths in the Ganges. Bathing in the Ganges is recommended in the Vedic literature because by such bathing one is freed from all sinful reactions. This is still current in India, especially at particular auspicious moments. At such times, millions of people bathe in the Ganges. After taking his bath, King Yudhishthir dressed in a new silken cloth and wrapper and decorated himself. After taking his bath, King Yudhishthir dressed in a new silken cloth and wrapper and decorated himself with valuable jewelry. The king not only dressed himself and decorated himself, but also gave clothing and ornaments to all the priests and the others who had participated in the yagyas. In this way, he worshipped them all. He constantly worshipped his friends, his family members, his relatives, his well-wishers, and everyone present. And because he was a Vaishnava, a great devotee of Lord Narayan, he knew how to treat everyone well. The Mayavadi philosophers endeavor to seek everyone as God in an artificial attempt at oneness. But a Vaishnava, or a devotee of Lord Narayan, sees every living entity as part and parcel of the Supreme Lord. Therefore, a Vaishnava's treatment of other living entities is on the absolute platform. As one cannot treat one part of his body differently from another part because they all belong to the same body, a Vaishnava does not see a human being as distinct from an animal because in both he sees the soul and the supersoul seated together. When everyone was refreshed after bathing and was dressed in silken clothing with jeweled earrings, flower garlands, turbans, long wrappers, and pearl necklaces. They looked altogether like the demigods from heaven. This was especially true of the women, who were very nicely dressed. Each wore a golden belt around the waist. They were all smiling with spots of tilak and curling hair scattered here and there. This combination was very attractive. I was just thinking about how Yudhishthir was worshipping everybody, although he was 
the main object of the sacrifice, he, he felt effusive in taking care of everybody else. And that uh, there's um, ultimately no satisfaction in taking any material position. The only satisfaction is really the motivation of doing that kind of service, especially out of love, like it's describing here. He loved them because they were all part of Krishna. And that was his real satisfaction. Any material position that one achieves will leave one feeling dissatisfied. But if there's a sense that one, if one actually develops love, then there, there's a kind of a completeness that's there that feels satisfied in the heart. When everyone was refreshed after bathing and was, and was dressed in silken clothing with jeweled earrings, flower garlands, turbans, long wrappers, and pearl necklaces, they looked altogether like the demigods from heaven. This was especially true of the women who were very nicely dressed. Each wore a golden belt around, her, around the waist. They were all smiling with spots of tilak and curling hair scattered here and there. This combination was very attractive. Those persons who had participated in the Rajasuya sacrifice, including the most cultured priests, the brahmanas who had assisted, the citizens of all the varnas, and the kings, demigods, sages, saints, and citizens of Pitriloka, were all very much satisfied by the dealings of King Yudhishthir, and at the end they happily departed for their residences. While returning to their homes, they talked of the dealings of King Yudhishthir and even after continuous talk of his greatness, they were not satiated, just as one may drink nectar over and over again and never be satisfied. After the departure of all the others, Maharaj Yudhishthira restrained the inner circle of his friends, including Lord Krishna, not allowing them to leave. Lord Krishna could not refuse the request of the king. Krishna therefore sent back all the heroes of the Yadu dynasty, Samba and others, all of them returned to Dwarka, and Lord Krishna personally remained to give pleasure to the king. In the material world, everyone has a particular type of desire to be fulfilled, but no one is, but one is never able to fulfill his desires to full satisfaction. But King Yudhishthir, because of his unflinching devotion to Krishna, could fulfill all his desires successfully by the performance of the Rajasu sacrifice. From the description of the Rajasuya Yagya, such a function appears to be a great ocean of opulent desires. Such an ocean is not possible for an ordinary man to cross. Nevertheless, by the grace of Lord Krishna, King Yudhishthira was able to cross it very easily, and thus he came, became freed from all anxieties. When Duryodhana saw that Maharaj Yudhishthira had become very famous after performing the Rajasuya Yagya, and was fully satisfied in every respect, he began to burn with the fire of envy because his mind was always poisonous. For one thing, he envied the imperial palace constructed by the demon Maya for the Pandavas. The palace was excellent in its puzzling artistic workmanship and was befitting the position of great princes, kings or leaders of the demons. In that great palace, the Pandavas lived with their family members and Queen Draupadi served her husbands very peacefully. And because in those days Lord Krishna was also there, the palace was also decorated by his thousands of queens. 
when the queens with their heavy breasts and thin waists moved within the palace and their ankle bells rang very melodiously with their movement, the whole palace appeared more opulent than the heavenly kingdom. Because a portion of their breasts was sprinkled with saffron powder, the pearl necklaces on their breasts appeared reddish. With their beautiful earrings and flowing hair, the queens appeared very attractive. After seeing such beauties in the palace of King Yudhishthir, Duryodhana was envious. He was especially envious and lustful upon seeing the beauty of Draupadi because he had cherished a special attraction for her from the very beginning of her marriage with the Pandavas. In the marriage selection assembly of Draupadi, Duryodhana had also been present, and along with the other princes, he had been very much captivated by the beauty of Draupadi, but he had feel, failed to achieve her. Once upon a time, King Yudhishthir was sitting on his golden throne in the palace constructed by the demon Maya. His four brothers and other relatives, as well as his great well-wisher Krishna, the supreme personality of Godhead, were present, and the material opulence of King Yudhishthir seemed no less than that of Lord Brahma. When he was sitting on the throne surrounded by his friends, and the reciters were offering prayers to him in the form of nice songs. Duryodhana came to the palace with his younger brothers. Duryodhana was decorated with a helmet, and he carried a sword in his hand. He was always in an envious and angry mood, and therefore on a slight provocation, he spoke sharply with the doorkeepers and became angry. By the craftsmanship of the demon Maya, the palace was so decorated in different places that one who did not know the tricks would consider water to be land and land to be water. Duryodhana was illusioned by this craftsmanship and when crossing water, thinking it to be land, he fell in. When Duryodhana, out of his foolishness, had thus fallen, <clears throat> the queens enjoyed the incident by laughing. King Yudhishthir could understand the feelings of Duryodhana, and he tried to restrain the queens, but Lord Krishna indicated that King Yudhishthir should not restrain them from enjoying the incident. <laughs> <laughs> Krishna desired that Duryodhana be fooled in that way, and that all of them enjoy his foolish behavior. <clears throat> when everyone laughed, Duryodhana felt very insulted, and his bodily hair stood up in anger. Thus being insulted, he immediately left the palace, bowing his head. He was silent and did not protest. When Duryodhana left in such an angry mood, everyone regretted the incident, and King Yudhishthir also was very sorry. But despite all these occurrences, Krishna was silent. He did not say anything against or in favor of the incident. It appeared that Duryodhana had been put into illusion by the supreme will of Lord Krishna. And this was the beginning of the enmity between the two sects of the Kuru dynasty. <clears throat> this appeared to be a part of Krishna's plan in his mission to decrease the burden of the world. 
King Parikshit had inquired from Shukadev Goswami why Duryodhana was not satisfied after the termination of the great Rajasiya sacrifice. And thus it was explained by Shukadev Goswami. Thus in the Bhaktivedanta purport of the 75th chapter of Krishna, why Duryodhana felt insulted at the end of the Rajasuya sacrifice. Hey,